Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go, here we go, here we go. Off with the music now. Okay. Well, bonjour, bonjour. How are you? Chris, a single tongue, uh, coming at you again with a solo episode today. This one is a doozy, um, but it's one that I'm super interested in, and it kind of is the story of how I got into religion, at least as deeply as I have, um, in a nutshell. So what we're going to talk about today I'm, gonna, I'm calling it Before the Bible. That's what I'm calling this uh, this episode. What this is going to be today is a look at the ancient Mesopotamian stories that found their way into the Bible. So what do I mean by that? Uh, we've talked about some of this stuff before, but the obvious um, reference is the flood story, Noah and the flood. So that's a story that comes, we know, comes in written form from ancient Mesopotamia, probably originating in southern Iraq. As an oral tradition, it may be five, 6,000 years old, maybe much, much longer than that. It's really difficult to tell. Um, but that is a place that um, archaeologists and historians call the cradle of civilization. So this is a place in the Middle East, um, in between the Tigris and Euphrates River, very fertile floodplain where they can grow crops and it was really kind of a nice place to live for a really a long stretch of ancient history maybe not so much today but um uh but that's where like the earliest writing systems came from the earliest written language um our earliest record of organized religion and cities you know cities like a lot of people living together a lot of um a lot of interesting technology that they had way, way back, um, especially how they got water into the city and how they got sewage out of the city and, you know, all that sort of stuff. I mean, we're talking here about the Sumerians, the Akkadians, the Babylonians. We're going way back. We're going, I mean, these people make the Romans look, look new. Uh, you know, these are ancient, ancient, ancient people. So um, the part of the world we're talking about is not far from where the uh, from where the Bible came from, you know, they usually call that the Levant. If you're ever reading any of these old histories, they call that the Levant. They also call the area that we call Turkey today. Um, they call that Anatolia. So there's different words that you'll see thrown around. But this whole area, basically, from the Arabian Desert, um, you know, north and um, West as far as Turkey in the Mediterranean, and then south down into, um, you know, uh, pa Palestine, Syria, you know, that Israel, that sort of area, all the way down into Egypt. So 
it was a big empire and it changed hands a few times, but we had a lot of people involved. Um, going way back to the Sumerians, 6,000 BC, living already in the cities there in uh, southern Iraq. And they tell stories that you will recognize. And there's all kinds of uh, questions about how did this happen? We're looking at this flood story, this Noah story in the Bible. We see it in these ancient Mesopotamian stories. Which one came first? Did the Hebrews borrow it from them? Did they borrow it from the Hebrews? Did the Babylonians and the Hebrews both borrow it from an from what you know from one of their ancestor groups? Let's say, um, really, really hard to tell. And so there are some people who will discredit. They'll use this to discredit. Uh, belief in organized religion or to discredit um, kind of the authority of the Bible. Um, so those sorts of people will say, look, you can tell the Bible's phony because they borrowed a bunch of stories here from these ancient Sumerians that go back way, way, way earlier, even than the Hebrews. And again, that may be true, uh, but it may also be that they just both borrowed stories that, you know, from an older civilization that they both came from. Um, and it's not that difficult to understand when you think that, um, the Akkadians and the Babylonians, and the Assyrians for that matter, they were all Semitic people living in that part of the world. You've heard that word thrown around before, Semitic. Where do you hear that? Well, you hear that from you know, in the, the racial context when you hear the word anti-Semitic. What does that mean? It means somebody who's against Jewish people. Well, what's this word Semitic and why is it in there? Because the Jewish people are a Semitic people. They're related to other people in the world. Uh, surprise, surprise. Those people also lived in this same area of the world. <laughs> you know, they were related. Of course they were related back then. They were living in the same place. They're probably cousins. Same argument that, that's made today um, from some people uh, about uh, the Arabs and the Palestinians. They're the uh, Arabs and the Jews, rather, that they're, that they're something like cousins. Um, so we see that. We see that with the Akkadians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians. We did not, though, see that with the Sumerians, and they were the ones that came first. So the Sumerians came first, then the Akkadians, and then the uh, Babylonians, as far as those empires go in the Middle East. Interesting thing about the Sumerians, and that's where this story comes from, which we'll see in a minute. Their language was not Semitic, so they weren't related to the Jews or the family of people that the Jewish people come from. Their language was also not Indo-European, which means it's not related to any of the Romance languages that we study today. It's not related to, um, you know, to Roman, to Greek, to, uh, um, you know, the um, the Indus Valley, uh, or not, not, not necessarily the Indus Valley civilization, but the Vedic uh, Indian language. And it's not related to any of that stuff that would have been surrounding them. So this goes way, way, way back culturally to basically a dark spot in history. We have very little idea where these ideas developed and for how long before we get to the Sumerians. Um, so there's some other things worth talking about before we dive in. Uh, what we're really going to do here is look at the stories that did come from Mesopotamia, the stories that do, that do predate the written accounts from Genesis and the Bible. These are older stories. Now, it's not clear if the written, if the um, oral tradition of people telling these stories over the campfire, let's say, there's, there's really no evidence to say how long the Hebrew stories existed and how long these Mesopotamian stories existed before they were written down. So it could be that they're both equally old. What's interesting is that there's definitely some overlap. It 
definitely seems like somebody was copying somebody else's paper when they were writing these myths. So we'll talk about it. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about where I'm, where I'm going to be reading all of this stuff, this stuff from in case you guys are interested. Um, there was a book that came out in 89 by a, a professor named Stephanie Daly, D-A-L-L-E-Y. She's a professor of Akkadian uh, at the University of Edinburgh and at, and at Oxford. She's a uh, lecturer and an expert in these ancient Middle East uh, languages. She wrote a book called Myths from Mesopotamia, which basically put her translations in English, and it added a bunch of information that we didn't know before 89 about uh, different different um, tablets that we found and different translations that we uncovered, just to update kind of what we know about these ancient Mesopotamian myths. So this is the one I'm using. I bought it, I don't know, man, 20 years ago and uh, read it, and I haven't read it since. So I've reread it to prepare for today, and there's some interesting stuff. The first one is for fans of ancient aliens. We're going to be talking about, you know, the Sumerian, Akkadian, and Babylonian religion, language, culture. So there's going to be some words that pop up that you may have heard before if you're a fan of ancient aliens, including the Anunnaki. So this is a this is something that does pop up in the um, Mesopotamian tablets. The Anunnaki is a, a name for a group of gods, the elder gods, the gods that were born first. It's not at all um, unusual. I mean, you see that with, let's say, with the Greeks um, who had the Olympian gods who were the new gods, and then before them, um, the, the Titans, I believe they called them. The, the, the original gods were Kronos and Rhea, and then they were sort of taken over by the Olympian gods, which was, you know, Zeus and, and, um, um, Zeus and Poseidon and all those, all those people. So the elder gods, um, and we also see that in the Scandinavian mythology, they have a family of gods called the Asir and a family of gods called the Veneer. So you may wonder about that. And it seems to go way back, uh, all the way back to the beginning. The earliest evidence we have of these religious stories, the Anunnaki were the first generation, the elder gods. Here's a word you probably haven't heard, uh, and I'll probably mispronounce. Um, I think it's... A Gigi? A Gigi? I have no idea. I-G-I-G-I. These are the younger generation of gods. So you've got the Anunnaki and the Ajiji. So you may not have heard that one, but that's what that's what this is. So those are the groups of gods that we're going to be talking about. Uh, I already mentioned that the Sumerian came before the Akkadian. Uh, when the um, Akkadians came around, again, they're speaking a Semitic language. It's different entirely from the uh, Sumerian. But what the Akkadians did is they united the people that were um, speaking Akkadian, the, those groups, and the people that were there already that were speaking Sumerian, they kind of combined uh, them together under one empire, and, and you know they all began to sort of become one, one culture at that point. Um, the Sumerians go back to 6,000 BC. The Akkadians start you know, maybe around 2300, 2400 BC. Um, the Babylonians maybe about the same time, but they're a little bit uh, uh, geographically a little bit different. Um, the Assyrians also come up. They basically were considered to be no different from the Babylonians. They're just a different city-state um, just north of where Babylon was. And we have all kinds of writing. This is the cuneiform writing that I've talked about before that come from the— usually these, they're in clay tablets or cylinder seals um, f that come to us from archaeology, and they just look like little wedges, you know, up and down, left and right, and little cr cross sections and cross hatches, and that's what the writing looks like. 
and um, there's an old Babylonian version that we have. There's a middle Assyrian version. There's a standard Babylonian version, and then there's a late version that goes all the way through the time of Alexander the Great. So there's a bunch of different styles of writing in different languages, but all of them look the same in this this cuneiform looking looking language. Um, and then when we talk about Akkadian, that's something that's kind of a broad term because. Like I said, the Akkadians united the um, Sumerians with the with their own people, the Semitic people. So you've got these different dialects of language. Um, mostly they just call them Akkadian. It was also the language of diplomacy for the entire Middle East in the uh, uh, 2000s BC through maybe the maybe all the way through the, the 1000s BC. Um, why is that important? Because it's like Latin was in the Middle Ages, right? It's like anybody writing something important, whether it's politically or, you know, philosophy or whatever it is, even if they don't speak Latin, they're writing in Latin because Latin is the language that of the, of the literate people. It's the language of diplomacy. Um, that's kind of what Akkadian was back then. And you guys might, may not know, but Akkadian was the, the language of diplomacy, even in Egypt, Turkey, and Iran back then. So really, this empire that stretched, you know, all the way across the Middle East, all the way to to Egypt, um, and and you know, all the way, um, you know, all the way east, you know, into uh, uh, Iran. So all of those people speaking different languages, you know, Persian and you know, ancient Turkish and you know, Coptic or whatever, whatever they would have been speaking um, in those areas, they were they were when they were doing diplomacy with other countries, they would have been writing in Akkadian. So, interesting. I didn't know that. Um, we can kind of get an idea of how important uh, the culture was. Um, I mean, we, we kind of brush that off nowadays, but there was a time when we didn't know. We didn't know much at all about these um, cultures from the Middle East. We didn't know how far back they went. We didn't know uh, that they were the first ones to invent writing. We didn't know. There was so much we didn't know that we've learned that makes the Mesopotamian culture uh, civilizations the most important in uh kind of the starting point of of modern uh history of history you know uh, you know for for lack of a better word um akkadian myths uh they were universally known you know in in antiquity in classical antiquity in, in all kinds of different languages so they, they weren't just written in akkadian um they were spoken uh you know all different you know, around the campfire with all different sorts of groups, the Sumerians, the Hittites, you've heard from the Bible, the Hurrians, even the Hebrews uh, would have been telling these same stories or versions of these same stories. Um, so, you know, you have to remember that there were trade routes that went from, you know, even, even then, that went from China and India all the way through to the Mediterranean. So these people would have been interacting with each other. They would have been speaking different languages. They would have been sharing their stories. Um, and some of those stories end up in the Old Testament, uh, in the Iliad and the Odyssey from, from Greece, even even the works of Hesiod from Greece, and also in the Arabian Nights. Um, so we'll see that as we go through. Where I want to begin is with the kind of earliest version we have of the Epic of Gilgamesh. So some people know the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, some people know that word or that name. Uh, the earliest version we have doesn't actually use the name Gilgamesh. It uses the name um, Atrahasis. Um, when, I, when I read this as a teenager, I thought it was Athrasis, and that's how I always remembered Athrasis, but it's definitely not. It's Atah- Atahas- At- 
Atrahasis, A-T-R-A-H-A-S-I-S. It means extra wise. So Gilgamesh, in the original story, was Atrahasis, the extra wise. He's the hero of our story. Um, and it, this is basically the Noah story that we're going to tell. Um, now, in the standard Babylonian version uh, that we have, the oldest one we have goes back to the 700s BC, so it's kind of much more recent. It doesn't use the word, uh, the name Atrahasis at all, because it, it's Babylonian and it uses a different name for the guy that we're going to call Noah. Um, his name is Ut Napishtim. Ut Napishtim. So whether I'm talking about Atrahasis or Ut Napishtim, this is Noah. I'm talking about Noah. Now, Utnapishtim, gosh, man, that name, hard to pronounce, means he found life. So one of the guy's names, Atrahasis, means the extra wise. Um, Utnapishtim, his name means he found life. All right, to make this more confusing, there's a Sumerian name for Noah, and it's different entirely. Um, And I'm going to have trouble pronouncing it, too. Um, Zasudra. Zasudra is how, what I'm going to go with. Now, they say it's possible that Zasudra is an abbreviation of, of um, Utnapishtim. So you can imagine if you abbreviated Utnapishtim and you took off the Uta and the Tim on the end, on the front end and the back end, that what you're left with is uh, Naish. And so it turns out Naish sounds a little bit like Noah. Uh, at least the way Noah would have been pronounced in, Pal- in Palestine in those early days. Today, if you ask like an Arab speaker what uh, the, to pronounce Noah, they're going to say N. So you can even see today that N and Noah are very different. And Naish may have been Noah once upon a time, and it comes from Ut Napishtim. All right, I might I might use Noah a bit more because it's easier to pronounce. Um, it's also been suggested that the name Ulysses. Uh, which the Romans used for Odysseus, for the Greek story of the Iliad and the Iliad and the Odyssey, um, Ulysses. And here's what's interesting. In the Hittite language, um, there's a a word or a name uh, I'm also going to have trouble pronouncing. um, Uluyas. Uluyas. And they think that that was a translation of Atrahasis. So you can see how Uluyas and Ulysses, or Ulysses, actually sound pretty goddamn similar. So it could have been that the Hittite translation of Atrahasis was Uluyas, Ulysses, Odysseus. That's pretty amazing. So the name for Odysseus may have been based on uh, this summarized version of, um, of Utnapishtim. There's also a something called a logogram. It's like a abbreviated way of writing the name. So in ancient Egypt, they would have a cartouche, and a cartouche was a way of uh, writing the name of a, of a usually a pharaoh of a, of, a, of a great of a great character. When you're writing a name, you you use a certain technique. You put it in a cartouche. So in the old days, in, in uh, some of these ancient languages, they used these sorts of abbreviations. You guys know, you know, like for instance, Hebrew doesn't use vowels. Let's say ancient Hebrew has no vowels. Um, so this it gives you some idea a way of a shortening or abbreviating a name, and it was U D. Z-I, U-D-Z, U-D-Z, Odysseus, something like that. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? U-D-Z-S, Odysseus. I hear it. 
Do you hear it? Interesting. So, um, you know, we kind of think of those ancient Greek myths, the Iliad and the Odyssey and the works of uh, Hesiod to be at the very beginning of Western civilization. So we already talked about um, the Tigris and Euphrates Valley, the cradle of civilization being the birthplace of culture and civilization as, as far as we know it. Um, so it's one thing to say that the Mesopotamians were the birthplace of civilization. It's another thing to say that the ancient Greeks were the birthplace of Western civilization. But what I want to point out to you here is that the Mesopotamian uh, hero story that we're going to talk about, this, this tradition of Atrahasis and Gilgamesh, that this seems to go all the way back to predate the Greek stories and perhaps even be their root, their source. And if that's the case, then these ancient Mesopotamian stories really aren't just the cradle of civilization, full stop. It's the cradle of civilization and the cradle of Western civilization. We're not going to be able to put this firmly in the, in the lap of the Greeks when the Greeks may have, may have borrowed these stories from the Mesopotamians. So I'll try to point that stuff out to you as I can. All right, so where does all this stuff start? 1700 BC, we have a written version of the Epic of Gilgamesh in the Old Babylonian language. Now remember, the Sumerians go back to 6000 BC, the Babylonians go back to 2500 BC. This story comes from 1700, so it's already old. You know, this story goes back double, triple, this far. So you can see it's had time to maybe change uh, over, over that time, and we don't have any way of knowing that because we don't this is this is the written version that we have that's the oldest and it starts like any good myth talking about how human beings were created how did we get here that's one of those questions that we, that we ask um, that's one of the questions that we ask when we're children it's one of the questions the first things that comes to mind you know when we're when we start to get philosophical how did the world get here and how did we get here where do we come from what is going on and let's see how the Epic of Gilgamesh addresses this. <clears throat> so here's the first quote from the scripture. When the gods, instead of man, did the work, bore the loads, the gods' load was too great. The bolt that bars the sea was assigned to far-sighted Enki. All right, so this is how it starts. I try to give you some information about the gods where I can so that you can try to make some sense of it. Um... First thing I want to point out here is really what this sentence has just said, that in, there was a time where the man didn't exist and the gods were doing all the work. Now, it's not clear what that work is, but the gods were doing it and that the load was too great. And then there's this little piece here that says the bolt that bars the sea was assigned to farsighted Enki. Um, because we're talking about different groups of people with different languages, the god Enki and the god E are actually the same. Um, the god E is associated with the god Apsu, so it gets confusing, but uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. If you guys remember from my Maps of Meaning lecture when Jordan talks about the Anuma Elish, which is the, one of the creation stories from the ancient Mesopotamia, it's different from Gilgamesh, but um, uh, we'll talk about it as well. It's basically the book of Genesis for these ancient Mesopotamians. They talk about Apsu. Uh, Apsu is the god of fresh water. He's the god of order. Uh, he's the goddess that's tied to Tiamat, who's the goddess of chaos. They were the ones that were together in the beginning. In the beginning, when there was nothing, there was Apsu and Tiamat together. 
Now, later on in the story, the god E actually kills the god Apsu. And because Apsu is the fresh water, E actually lives in the domain of Apsu. So when he kills Apsu, he goes to live in, under the earth, in the water. And, and so so E kind of takes the place of Apsu. Apsu is one of these primordial gods that once, once the cosmos gets, gets created, they, those gods tend to kind of go away. You don't really hear from them much. And so this is what happens with the god Inki or E. He kind of takes the place of Apsu and he becomes the god of fresh water and the god of order, even though originally it was Apsu. So why am I telling you this? Because there's a line in that creation story called the Enuma Elish that I talked about in the Maps of Meaning lectures, where once Tiamat is, and Tiamat's the goddess of chaos, once she's sort of subdued and put in and put under the control of uh, of consciousness under the god Marduk, when that happens, now Tiamat's the goddess of salt water, and uh, she actually gets held back. By a bolt, so you get this idea that the sea, the salt water, is being held back in, in in its place, and that allows for life in order to to come about and not be destroyed by chaos or by Tiamat. And we have a reference right at the beginning of the story about the creation of man to that the bolt that bars the sea, and it says it was assigned to Inki. Now remember, Inki took the place of Apsu, and Apsu is the freshwater. The freshwater holds back the salt water. Um, so this is a part of the story that goes back to the, their story about the creation of the cosmos. And so I want to point that out, because here at the very beginning of the story of the creation of man, we have this reference to the bolt that bars the sea that comes from this other story. It doesn't really make a lot of sense in this context, but it's there. So I'm pointing it out, and, and we'll see that in, in a bit, why that you know, that may be important. Um, there's also a connection that I want to bring up here about the bolt that bars the sea because because what it does is it holds back the goddess Tiamat. It keeps her protected. It keeps, it keeps chaos at bay. But it also makes her unavailable or inaccessible to the world. And it reminds me of a story that's going to become connected with this from Genesis has to do with Adam and Eve, when Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden. I don't know if you remember, but in the Bible, God places cherubims with a flaming sword at the entrance to the garden to keep people from coming back, to keep Adam and Eve from ever coming back into the garden. So you've got this idea of the bolt that bars the waters that holds back Tiamat from the world and, and keeps the world from accessing Tiamat. In the same way, you've got these cherubims that are guarding Eden, that are holding back, that are barring Eden from people ever getting back there. Uh, you may think that's a stretch, comparing these cherubim that are guarding Eden to this bolt that guards Tiamat, but, but I think that there's some connections, and we're going to see that. And that's kind of the main gist here. I want to show you where there are similarities between these Mesopotamian stories and the biblical stories, in case you're curious, because I am, and I was. You know, why do people use these stories to undermine the Jewish and Christian stories? And is there any reason to think that that's legitimate? And are the are the relationships between these Mesopotamian stories and the biblical stories really that close? You know, how close are they? So that's kind of the, the questions that I wanted to answer for you today. So I'm going to start back where I began. When the gods, instead of man, did the work, bore the loads. The gods' load was too great. The bolt that bars the sea was assigned to far-sighted Enki. All right, now, 
here's the next quote. Let us confront our chamberlain and get him to relieve us of our work. So this is the gods that are saying, hey, let's go to, you know, our chamberlain. Let's go to the god that's assigned to um, deal with our grievances. Um, Let's get the god, the chamberlain, to relieve us of all of this work we have to do. So this is what happens. The Anunnaki, the elder gods, and the Ajiji, the younger gods, they all gather together. And there's a god named Enlil. Uh, he asks um, who has come and why, the, and, and why. Like, why are the gods getting together and what's going on? And they respond like this. They say, every single one of us gods declared war. We have put a stop to the digging. The load is excessive. It is killing us. Our work is too hard. The trouble too much. All right, so these are the gods pleading their case. There's all this work to be done, and it's too much, and we can't do it. We're dying. We're dying as a result. Now, I have to ask you a question here. This is a time when the cosmos seems to be being formed, and the reason I say that is because what is the work that's being done here? It's like the gods are the only things that exist at this point, and they're doing all this work, and there aren't human beings yet. So what is the work exactly? And maybe it's the work of creating the place where man, mankind can be created, the cosmos. Maybe it's that. And so you can understand that the, these supernatural creatures uh, in ancient times were seen to be the force behind bringing something out of nothing, you know, bringing the, bringing the cosmos into being. So that makes sense. Um, so maybe the work has something to do with that, the, cre- the creation, and they say the load is excessive, it's killing us. Our work is too hard, our trouble too much. And then it says, Enlil listened to that speech. His tears flowed. And then he addresses a god called Anu, or An. He says, Noble one, take a decree with you to the sky. Now, Anu was the god of the sky. So, you know, that, that, what he's saying is just, you know, Go up to the sky, the thing that you are, which is a little bit weird to say, but that's what he's saying. He says, show your strength while the Anunnaki are sitting before you. Call up one God and let him, and let, excuse me, call up one God and let them cast him for destruction. So this is interesting. So you have the God Enlil and the God An, and they're saying, what I want you to do is go up into the sky, and while you're up there and you can see all of the gods gathered, you know, get their attention and ask them to, to send one of the gods up to Anu to be destroyed. So it's like a sacrifice. But because nothing exists but the gods, the god, or the, one of the gods has got to be sacrificed. And some, this is how they're going to put an end to the work that they have to do, by sacrificing a god. All right, that's interesting. So far, does any of this sound like the Bible to you? No? Okay. Agreed. All right, so now we've got uh, this piece. Um, We'll get a goddess who gets introduced. Her name is Mammy. It says, Mammy, the womb goddess, is present. Let her create primeval man so that he may bear the yoke. Let Let man bear the load of the gods. Okay, so now we seem to have some... Some context. Why are they asking to sacrifice a god? Well, they're asking this mammy lady who they're calling the womb goddess. Seemingly, she's the goddess that gives birth to new gods and new things. And they're asking her to create primeval primeval man, the first human beings. All right, so the next bit says, Inky made his voice heard and spoke to the great gods. I shall make a purification by washing. Then one god should be slaughtered. 
Nintu shall mix clay with his flesh and blood. So Nintu is another goddess. It says, then a god and a man will be mixed together in clay. Then it says, let us hear the drum beat forever after. Let a ghost come into existence from the god's flesh. Let her pro- proclaim it as his living sign so as not to forget the slain god. So this is, I love this. This is one of the coolest passages that, that, that I can point to. So, so Enki's basically saying, okay, we're going to kill this god, and this goddess, um, the womb goddess, is going to mix clay with the flesh and blood of the god to make, to make man. And then this bit right here, let us hear the drum beat forever after. Let a ghost come into existence from the god's flesh. What does that mean? So listen to this. So they're gonna mix, they're gonna mix the flesh and blood of this slain god in with the clay, which again it comes from the earth. We have this heavenly bit, which is like what what we would call the soul. That's the heavenly part of us that's not material. And then we have the earthly part of us, which is the body. Right? So he's gonna take clay, which is the earth, and the flesh and blood of the god, which is the god, the, the you know, the god part, the soul part, mix them together. So now we're part of of the earth and part of the heavens. That's what man is. And we, you know, we, we, we know that. We think about ourselves that way, and we have ever since the ancient Greeks we invented the idea of a soul, or the ancient Egyptians did. Um, so when he says, after this has happened, you've mixed the, the earth and the heavens together to create man, then he says, let us hear the drumbeat forever after. What is that? What is the drumbeat? The drumbeat of life. Didum. 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 The heartbeat. Isn't that amazing? So they're going to mix the, the, the slain God in with, the, with, in with the clay of the earth, and they're going to hear a drumbeat forever after. And, and what is the drumbeat? He says, let a ghost come into existence from the God's flesh. So that's the God part. That's the soul part. That's the animating part of our body. And it says, let her proclaim it as his living sign. So that the reason that I'm alive is because I have a God in me. Something like that. And it's not to forget the slain God. So the drumbeat of our heart is a reminder to us that we have a God inside us and that a God had to be sacrificed for us to exist. I mean, I realize that that's a mythological thing to say and it's poetic, but I love it and I agree with it to, to a certain degree. I love that sentiment. Let us hear the drumbeat forever after. I love that. All right, so we're talking here about forming human beings from clay, uh, from the clay of the earth and from the blood of the God. Now, does that sound familiar? Does that ring a bell from the Bible? Yes and no, it kind of should. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Does that ring a bell? Nintu shall mix clay with, the fle- with his flesh and blood. Then a god and a man will be, will be mixed together in clay. Let us hear the drum beat forever after. Let the ghost come into existence from the god's flesh. Let her proclaim it at his, at, at, as his living sign. I mean, so the living soul, that language is there. The dust of the ground is there with the clay. Um, you know, the god breathing life into it. All of that stuff is consistent with the Mesopotamian story. So there you have it. The creation of man from the Bible, we're starting to see some correlation now. All right, the story continues. After she had mixed the clay, she called up the Anunnaki, the Ajiji, the great gods, 
And then she says, I have carried out perfectly the work that you have ordered of me. You have slaughtered a God together with his intelligence. You have bestowed noise on mankind. I have undone the fetter and granted freedom. Okay, so there's all sorts of interesting stuff here. So now she's proclaiming that she's done the work, she's done the magic, she's created human beings out of, out of the material reality and out of God. And she says, you have slaughtered a God together with his intelligence. So she's pointing out that the thing that's getting mixed into a human being is not just the life force, it's not just the soul that makes that animates the body, but it's also, it's also the intelligence that the gods have. So what does that mean? The intelligence. So what the gods seem to have that the rest of the world doesn't is consciousness, right? It's something like that. It's the ability to think and the ability to act. So when they say that the slaughtered god was mixed in with the clay, what they're saying here is that that soul, but also the intelligence, the consciousness, that that, that thing that the gods are, that, that we also are. The thing the Bible says when, when it says that we were made in the image of God. Um, and it, it was taken from the God that was slaughtered, and it was bestowed on man. That's, that's an interesting, because it's consciousness, seemingly, when he, when that, that she's referring to when she says the God together with his intelligence. So mankind is given consciousness. It's given intelligence. And then it says, you have bestowed noise on mankind. I have undone the fetter and granted freedom. So now you get this idea that once human beings have consciousness, then they become noisy. Now, you can take that on the surface, and you can, you can assume that means speech and racket and all the stuff we're doing that's, that's making noise, that's disturbing this peace and silence that used to be there. You can think of that. But because there's this link to intelligence, to consciousness of the gods, um, this is what comes to my mind. You ever... You ever lay down at night to go to sleep and you close your eyes and you, you're anxious, you got things on your mind and it doesn't matter how, how forcefully you try to quiet your mind and shut yourself up. These thoughts, they just keep popping back up in your head. Maybe they're thoughts, maybe they're worries, maybe they're fantasies, uh, maybe they are songs, right? You would not believe how many times I wake up in the middle of the night and it's like, I must have been singing that song in my dreams because as soon as I, as soon as I come to, I'm singing this effing song and it's usually something terrible that I don't want to be thinking about. So this is the point I'm bringing up. Have you ever been in one of these situations where you close your eyes and you're trying to clear your head or you're trying to fall asleep and your mind will not let you? And over and over and over and over again, you get interruptions from your anxiety, from your thoughts, from your fantasies. Have you ever tried to meditate? You ever been new to meditation? Same problem. You sit there, you try to clear your mind, and it doesn't matter. You know, what What do you have to do later today? What's for dinner? What are you going to cook? You know, don't forget to pick up the kids. Don't forget to make that phone call. You know, whatever it is, all of those things continue to pop up in your head. And this continues to, to be a visual for me when I read this. You have bestowed noise on mankind. And then it says, I have undone the fetter and granted freedom. Now, the fetter, to me, they don't say what it is, but it reminds me of something that came up at the beginning of the conversation. Um, it was the, uh, it was the what, did they, what did they call it? Um, 
the bolt that bars the sea is what they called it when, when they were talking about that thing, that fetter that holds back the salt water, that holds back Tiamat. Now, Tiamat is the generative force. She's chaos. She's the thing that's needed for new things to come into existence. You can't, it can't be done without chaos. So what, this is what it sounds like to me. When she says, you have bestowed noise on mankind, and I have undone the fetter and granted freedom, it kind of sounds like that's the fetter that she's referring to. Whatever was holding back chaos, whatever was holding back the generative force. So this, this thing that they call Tiamat, this creative force, this great goddess, that also seems to be a part of mankind, or at least what mankind is now subject to, because the fetters have been undone. And freedom has now been granted. Well, what does that mean? What kind of freedom? Well, freedom to act in the world. Freedom to try to bring something new into being. Freedom that only Tiamat can provide. So that's interesting. So here you have this, you have to, you have to imagine that human beings are being uh, created. They're being mixed in with a god. There's a god bit that's, that's part of our being, uh, at least mythologically speaking. And that has to do with our consciousness. And that is where we... we start talking about the noise that was bestowed on man. It comes with consciousness. And that's why I think those moments when you, your mind won't leave you alone, like seemingly against your will, your thoughts will not shut up, that, that that's distracting and that's frustrating. And you can imagine if you're having trouble sleeping and all you want to do is get some rest, that's maddening. And it comes with self-consciousness. It comes with a creature who's able to think about themselves and able to think about the future and able to plan and think about consequences. It's about a creature who can have anxiety. And that's what consciousness gives us, the ability to have anxiety, to think about the future. That's interesting. All right, so now we get into a more familiar story. Now man has been created. And what happens immediately after? Well, let's go back to the story here. Let's go back to the scripture. The Mesopotamian story goes, 600 years passed, and the country became too wide, the people too numerous. The country was as noisy as a bellowing bull. The god grew restless at their racket. Enlil had to listen to their noise. All right. So before I talk about the biblical uh, passage that goes along with this, because there is one. I want, to, I want to mention when it says Enlil had, Enlil had to listen to their noise, it, it, this is also suggesting that the noise that the human beings are making is audible to the gods in heaven. Like they can hear this racket. And that may also be, um, again, if you're thinking about God as consciousness, which I like to do, and that that being the thing that we, that we share in common in God's image, that we're also conscious that those thoughts that we're hearing in our heads, that even those thoughts are, are, quote, audible to the gods because we're consciousness and they're consciousness. And so the thoughts that occur in our consciousness, those things are also in, you know, just as audible to the gods. They're hearing those things just as much as if you opened your mouth. So there's a connection between the gods and consciousness that I wanted to emphasize again. It's not just that when the God was killed and mankind was made, that it bestowed consciousness on us somehow, but also that the gods themselves are like that. They're conscious, and that they tap into even our conscious thoughts. Um, something like that. All right, let me read this again. So this is 600 years after human beings have been created, and the Mesopotamian story says, the country became too wide, the people too numerous, 
the country was a, was as noisy as a bellowing bull, and the gods grew restless at their racket. So I'm going to read the biblical version. It goes like this. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and the daughters were born unto them. And the gods saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of his thoughts and his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord, and he made man on the earth, excuse me, and it repented the Lord that he made he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. So in both cases, we have a time after mankind was created when they became too many on the planet. Whether we're saying uh, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, or whether we're saying the people were too numerous, we're basically speaking the same language. And then God gets upset um, in the Mesopotamian story because of the noise, whatever that is. Um, and the gods grew restless. In the biblical story, it wasn't the noise, but the wickedness of man on earth. And it grieved God at his heart. So whether gods became restless or grieved, we're looking at basically the same story here. We don't exactly know what they mean by noise exactly. But it seems to me that that, that has to do with, uh, with, with consciousness. It's tied very, very closely to, to consciousness, to our thoughts. All right, the Mesopotamian story goes on. Um, let's see. So we have, what do we have? Um, Enlil. Okay, so Enlil addresses the great gods. He says, The noise of mankind has become too much. I am losing sleep over the racket. Give the order that disease shall break out. All right, so here I want to point out that God is losing sleep over the racket of human beings. And that's kind of why I brought up the example I did about if you personally are laying down trying to sleep, but your thoughts won't shut up, how frustrating that, how maddening that can become. You know, if you've tossed and turned all night or you literally didn't sleep all night, maybe 20 minutes at best, you know what I mean. You have a night like that. You'd be, you'd, be, you'd be almost willing to destroy all the human beings on, on earth or just destroy the entire earth at that point yourself if, if you're that, that long without sleep. It's, it's that bad. It's, I mean, sleep deprivation is used as a form of torture for a reason. So this is interesting. It's like the thoughts of human beings are like that. And you can imagine if, you know, uh, there's 7 billion people on the planet. Back in the Mesopotamian days, there weren't. But imagine 7 billion people on the planet and all of our personal thoughts, all of our whims and thoughts and commentary that gets going on in our head all the time. Imagine that playing over a loudspeaker. And every single person's got a loudspeaker doing it. Imagine. If you were God floating up in heaven, would you, would you pull the plug on, on the creation as well at that point? And you can kind of get the idea. And I also think it's interesting, though, that the gods themselves are hearing these internal thoughts and anxieties and stuff of all the, of all the people that they've created, and they're like, fuck, enough is enough. <laughs> all right. And here's where the story changes. It says, Now there was one, Atrahasis, whose ear was open to his god Enki. He would speak with his god, and his god would speak with him. Now, there's a passage in the Bible about, about Noah that reads almost exactly the same way that Noah walked with God and God spoke with him. So, again, there's another another connection. But we're talking here about Atrahasis or Noah, you know, same, same guy. Enki made his voice heard and spoke to his servant. So this is the God, Enki, talking to uh, Noah or Atrahasis. He says, start an uprising in your own house. 
Do not revere your gods. Do not pray to your goddesses, but search out the door of Namtara. Namtara is the goddess of the underworld. She's the one who decides everyone's fate. So he says, stop worshiping your gods. You know, don't send them any sacrifices. Don't pray to them. Instead, search out the goddess who, who decides fate. Bring him uh, or her um, a baked loaf. So I think maybe Namtara is a, a, a male god. But I'm not sure. So bring a baked loaf into his presence. So the flower offering can reach him. Um, it says, may he be shamed by the presence and wipe away his hand. So Atrahasis took up the order. He gathered the elders to his door. It says, Atrahasis made his voice heard. The elders listened to his speech. They built the temple for, for Namtara. They did not revere their gods. They did not pray to their goddess, but brought a baked loaf into his presence. The flower offering reached him. He was shamed and wiped his hands. The disease left them. All right, so all the noise pisses off the gods. They decide to send disease down to kind of punish human beings or to thin the herd to try to try to make it a little quieter down there. And this this whole um, guidance that Noah is getting, that Atrahasis is getting, is you know don't worry about you know honoring any other any of the other gods. Go right to the god who can actually change your fate, and ask desperately for that god to take away this disease. And that's what they did. And the god Namtara uh, obliged. So the disease, the disease leaves human beings. Now, 600 years again passes. And the process repeats just like it does before. But this time, the gods don't send disease. And it goes like this. Cut off food supplies to the people. Let vegetation be too scant for their hunger. Let Adad, and Adad is the weather god, wipe away his rain. Let no flood water flow from the springs. Let wind go. Let it strip the ground bare. All right, so first there was disease that God sent. And after 600 years, now, they're gonna, now the, the noise has not gotten any better. So now he, they're going to cut all the water off from human beings. No more rain, no more floods, no more springs, no more wind. And the ground is just going to be stripped bare. Nothing to eat. So again, Atrahasis is warned by the god uh, Enlil and given the same instructions. But this time, he's going to appeal to the god Adad, the storm god. So stop worshiping everybody. Go to Adad. Um, you know, pray to him. Give him give him a, sa- a sacrifice. So they do that, and uh, the drought. And the, uh, again, the same 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 thing happens. Adad agrees. The drought is ended, and the people now have what their water back. And the story goes on again. Same process repeats. Uh, this time, the gods send sicknesses and headaches against mankind and all the plagues from before as well. And after six years of starvation and devastation, the story says, they served up a daughter for a meal, served up a son for food. Only one or two households were left. Their faces were covered in scabs like malt. So at this point, things are getting really bad. There's no food. It's gotten to the point where people are eating their children. That's what, that's what he says has happened. It's gotten so bad that there's only a couple of people left, two households left, and their faces were covered in scabs like malt. So I want to bring a couple things up here. Shit's getting really bad, but there's no flood yet. So you might have wondered about that. Um, also, th- the story we're talking about here where you know there's drought and there's sickness and there's plagues, it reminds me of another biblical story. It reminds me almost exactly of what happens with Pharaoh 
and Moses, when Moses sends the plagues against Egypt to try to free his people. Another story that comes from the same book of the Bible. Quite interesting. So in the Atrahasis story, these plagues that are being sent by God against man, it was going against everybody, trying to, trying to you know, kill off people so they won't be so goddamn noisy, so they won't be so goddamn conscious, self-conscious, you might say. So in the biblical story, it's, it's again, just happening against the uh, um, Egyptians, but in this story, it's happening to everyone, and uh, I mean, it's hard not to see the parallels. All right, so then Atrahasis, again, he pleads with Enki, who appeals to the gods on his behalf. Um, Enlil blames Enki for their lack of success in punishing mankind and getting them to shut up. He tells Enki, you must create a flood. It is indeed your power that shall be used against your people. So Enki's the one who's going to be able to bring the floods, and he says it's your power that should be used against the people. Now, Atrahasis is warned by Enki and was told to dismantle his house and build a boat. He is told to, quote, reject possessions and save living things. And it goes on like this. The boat you build, roof it like Apsu so that the sun cannot see inside it. Make upper decks and lower decks. The tackle must be very strong. The bitumen strong to give strength. Uh, bitumen is like a it's a sticky substance that they used to like waterproof and stuff like that in the ancient times. So the bitumen strong to give strength. I shall make rain fall on you here seven nights worth. And then he goes on. Now this is all going to start sounding familiar to you. He says, fat ones he selected and put on board. The birds that fly in the sky. Cattle. Wild animals of open country. He put on board. He put his family on board. The flood came out against the people like an army. No one could see anyone else. The flood roared like a bull, like a wild ass screaming. The winds howled. The darkness was total. There was no sun. For seven days and seven nights, the torrent, storm, and flood came on. Okay, so that should, that should sound familiar to you. Some of that, uh, some of that sounds pretty damn familiar. All right. So after the flood subsides, the world is quiet at last, okay? But as soon as they um, believed that the gods had finally solved the human problem, quote, the gods smelt the fragrance of a burnt offering. So the flood seems to have done the trick. The world has been quieted. And all of a sudden, the gods start smelling something good. And they know that it's a burnt offering. They know that not everybody was destroyed. So the gods, they eat the offering, but they were furious that somebody had survived. And Enlil says, We, the great Anuna, that's just another way of saying the Anunnaki, all of us agreed together on an oath. No form of life should have escaped. How did any man survive the catastrophe? <coughs> Excuse me. Let me read that again. The gods smelt the fragrance of a bird offering. And the god Enlil says, We, the great Anunnaki, all of us agreed together on an oath. No form of life should have escaped. How did any man survive the catastrophe? All right, so the Bible says this. And Noah builded the, the, an altar unto the Lord. So this is right after the, the floods subside. and He's able to leave the ark. He's, it says, Noah builded an altar to the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. 
And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. So in both stories, the flood goes away. Um, uh, the, uh, the, you know, the Noah guy comes out. He builds an altar, sacrifices the animals. The gods smell it. They know that, that human beings have survived. This is exactly what we see in the biblical story. The only difference is in the biblical story that God says he won't do it again. In the Mesopotamian story, we don't quite have that same promise. All right. So then the god Enki, it says, Enki made his voice heard and spoke to Enlil. He says, who but Enki would do this? Enki made his voice heard and spoke to the great gods. He said, I did it in defiance of you. I made sure life was preserved. So that's interesting. In the, in the Bible, um, you know, God sees that Noah's perfect, you know, among the generations and wants to save him because he's a good man. Um, there aren't any other gods in the Bible, right? So in the Mesopotamian story, it's one God who was the favorite of Atrahasis. And it was that God who defied all of the other gods to save him, you know, against the will of God of the, or the rest of them. So that's interesting. And now the, the text is basically frag, fragmented from here. There's lots of stuff that, that is missing, so we don't exactly know what's going on. But what you can read implies that at this point, the gods punished mankind for surviving. So it's like, you know, you weren't supposed to survive the flood. So the punishment they have is a finite lifetime. So the god says, okay, we couldn't kill you, but guess what? You're not going to be able to live forever. Now since you, you know, didn't die as you were supposed to in the flood, I'm going to give you a certain finite lifetime so that one day you will die. And in this way, we can keep the people from becoming too many and the noise becoming too much, that kind of thing. And then it picks up, it picks up like this. In addition, let there be one third of the people who gives birth yet does not give birth successfully. Let there be a demon among the people to snatch the baby from its mother's lap. So in the Bible, especially in the Adam and Eve story, when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, there is, I mean, God does tell them something kind of like this. He says, you know, your life's going to be hard. Uh, women are going to have to uh, give painful childbirth, and the, you're going to have to work the fields and the sweat of your brow and all that sort of thing. He, that's the punishment that human beings get in the Bible. Here, they're saying that a third of the women who give birth, their babies are going to die. I think that's a little bit more harsh. But what's interesting here is that that story comes, it shows up in the Talmud. So I've talked about the Talmud before, but if you're a Jew, you know. If not, I'll tell you. The Talmud is a rabbinical book. It's like all of the all of the, um, uh, the priests, all the rabbis for thousands of years who have been studying the Bible and a pointing out things that don't that don't make sense or things that require more explanation and they basically created these other books the Talmud the Midrash the Mishnah that that uh, tell these other stories and one of the stories that appears in the Talmud is about there's two stories in the Bible about the creation of of man one of them is that God takes um, takes dust and makes man and woman another one is that um, God creates man from dust but then he takes the rib from Adam to make to make Eve. So there's actually two different stories there. And what they did in the Talmud to explain it is they say that the first woman was not Eve. 
So Eve came from Adam's rib. But the first story is not about Eve. It's about Adam's first wife. Ba ba ba. What? Adam had a first wife? You bet your ass. According to the Talmud, um, Adam Adam married a woman named Lilith. Uh, anybody who um, knows about Lilith Fair or anybody who is in the LGBTQ plus community, you probably maybe have heard of Lilith before. Lilith is a character that's kind of been adopted um, by, some, by some lesbian groups, largely or women empowerment type groups. And the idea is this. In the first story of the creation of man and woman in the Bible, Adam and Eve are both created from, from dirt in exactly the same way. So Adam and Eve had the same birth. So they had the same status. Man and woman were equal in the eyes of God, created the same way. You can make a different argument for the story of Eve because she comes from Adam's rib, right? So God creates Adam. Adam is this divine creature. Eve is semi-divine, you might say. She comes from Adam's rib. She, she doesn't come, she wasn't created like Adam. She was created from Adam. So what does that mean about Eve? She's subordinate to Adam. She's underneath him somehow. So that's where you can see the women empowerment people saying, oh shit, uh-uh, no. I'm going to attach myself to Lilith, not Eve. And so that's what's happened. But this is why I bring up the story. Because Lilith is the name of a demon in ancient Mesopotamia. And, and Lilith was believed to be the demon responsible for infant mortality. So in the, Jewish, in, the, in the ancient Jewish world, if you had a baby and your baby died in childbirth or if your baby died as an infant, and that happened a lot in the old days, they literally believed that, they, that it was the curse of Lilith, that Lilith, the first wife of, of Adam, is this demon that roams the earth and goes around snatching souls from babies. So that's part of the Jewish tradition even today. You ever heard of that? Interesting, right? And here we have from this ancient Mesopotamian story, 2000 BC, in addition, let there be one third of the people who gives birth yet does not give birth successfully. Let there be a demon among the people to snatch the baby from its mother's lap. There you have it. Interesting. Interesting. All right. So I want to change course a little bit because that's sort of where this story wraps up. Um, and there's, there are other components to the story that you'll see later that we don't really see in this story. And I want to talk about those because I think they're important as well, but this is kind of where the story wraps up. So you have the creation of man, you have the fall of man, sort of, you have, uh, the flood, the destruction, the survival of the flood by the, you know, small group of people. And, um, uh, all that sort of thing that you see in the Mesopotamian story, you also see in the Bible. All right, so I want to change gears a little bit. Um, talk about the Epic of Gilgamesh, where we're actually going to be talking about the story of Gilgamesh and not this Atrahasis version, which is which is the older older one. Um, all right, before we do a couple things that are interesting about Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh is one of those. Uh, characters that's considered to be mythological, but it's also considered to be historical. So you might think about someone like Moses, you know, it's like something, or even Jesus. There's an argument um, about whether they were actually historical 
characters, whether there may be a compilation of several characters over a period of time, like that, that argument gets made about Robin Hood, it gets made about King Arthur, you know, that maybe they were just a hodgepodge of different stories from different people over a certain, certain period of time in the same culture that get kind of mushed together, something like that. So Gilgamesh is like that. You know, there's all kinds of crazy mythological stories that are told about him, but he was also supposed to have been a king. You know, his father and grandfather were kings, uh, you know, of of Aruk, the city that he was supposed to have come from. But here's the thing. Um, The historical figure of Gilgamesh, if he was a real person, he's thought to have lived between 2800 and 2500 B.C., um, the earliest written account where we see the name Gilgamesh comes from 2150 BC, so several hundred years after when he, w- he was supposed to have lived. But here's the thing. The figure of Gilgamesh, the image that we see of Gilgamesh, that we see on cylinder seals and sculptures that we find from the ancient Middle East, um, there's pictures of, of Gilgamesh, no, no doubt about it. Uh, many of those pictures, though, they go back way earlier than 2100. Some of them go back earlier than 2800, where, when this guy was supposed to have been uh, actually alive. Um, and there's these, you know, um, antediluvian kings list or Babylonians kings list that I talked about uh, once before uh, that that give the names of the kings that, that lived uh, that that ruled Mesopotamia. And um, they, they, those lists usually end with Noah. They usually end with the flood. And uh, we see those lists that have Gilgamesh as an actual king, and yet we see images of Gilgamesh older than that. So what what seems to be happening here is Gilgamesh is um, a hodgepodge of certain characters from from history, um, you know, something like that, where there's kind of a mixed chronology about him, and the myths and the historical stories that are getting told about him, they get all kind of mixed together, and it happened over a long stretch of time, people people were telling stories about this guy. Um, okay. Also, I wanted to mention that the, um, the version of the story we're going to read comes from the 7th century BC, so it's a much later version of the story, but it's a complete version. It comes from Nineveh. Uh, when they, when the archaeologists were uh, were excavating in Nineveh, they found these twelve tablets, and that's what we're going to read today. Um, there's a note here that the seventh century version contains um, a lot of the stories from the Sumerian version that we already read, the Atrahasis version. Um, but there's stories that don't appear in that one, so there's definitely things that are extra that are added that we're going to see. And versions of this story have been found in Iraq, Iran, Turkey in the Syria-Palestine area that, that they will call the Levant, um, in all different sorts of languages. So this story was widespread, wide known, and it even goes back historically, probably even before the Mesopotamians um, attributed this actual king in their king's list, that this Gilgamesh character existed even before that. So maybe, may again, a hodgepodge of an older king, you know, an, a legendary figure of some sort with an actual king, something like that. All right, so where the story begins is with Gilgamesh. So we're not beginning like we did earlier with the creation of human beings. We're going to get right into Gilgamesh. So it goes like this. Gilgamesh, perfect in strength, son of the lofty cow, the wild cow Ninsun. Who, who can compare with him? Who can say, I am king, besides Gilgamesh? Two-thirds of him was divine and one-third mortal. All right, I'll stop there for a second. What does that bring to your mind? This guy was two-thirds divine, one-third mortal. 
his mother was the was the wild cow Ninsun, right? She was the, uh, the cow goddess. His mother was a goddess. He was part mortal, part divine. What does that make you think of? Hercules, right? It makes you think of Hercules. There's a lot of things that are going to look like Hercules, or even like Odysseus. Um, I don't know that Odysseus was thought to be a demigod, but definitely somebody like, um, um, not Patrocles, what, what's, the, what's the guy's name from, uh, from Troy, the, uh, the hero of Troy, um, Brad Pitt from the movie, come on, Achilles, god damn it, Achilles, Achilles was thought to be, um, the son of, of a god, and uh, or, or the his mother was a goddess. I can't remember. So there are people like that, but Hercules definitely. They called them um, demigods when they when they were half mortal, half god, or some combination. They were called demigods. Gilgamesh was a demigod. They're saying he was perfect in strength. His mother was the cow goddess. If that sounds weird to you, cow goddess, um, I'll just mention in ancient in ancient India, in the oldest Hindu religion, the oldest religion that we have, cows are considered sacred. Um, and it's not hard to understand why, you know, cows give people, uh, meat and milk. Um, ca- you know, cows are fertilizing, fertilizing the fields that they're grazing on, which help bring up, bring about the crops. You know, cows are very important. Plus the horns of the cow have always been associated with the crescent moon. So the cow has an association with the moon. So there's all kinds of reasons why cows are considered life giving and they're, cons- and they're considered divine. Um, so this is not at all, and in fact, even the cow is oftentimes a symbol even for the earth in, in mythology. So, so this is not as weird as you might think it is. Gilgamesh's mother was the cow goddess, um, something like Hercules. It goes on like this. Gilgamesh would not leave any son alone for his father. Day and night, his behavior was overbearing. Gilgamesh would not leave young girls alone, the daughters of warriors, the brides of young men. The gods often heard their complaints. So here I want to mention that Gilgamesh was not a seemingly a good king, uh, at least not a moral one. This kind of reminds me of uh, Braveheart, where um, they were describing in the Middle Ages how uh, the the nobles, the the uh, feudal lords, uh, they kind of had first crack at any woman when they were married. So you could so you could have uh, a marriage ceremony going on. And the Lord can ride into town and take the virgin to his uh, castle and claim her for his own. And then bring, and then when she's not a virgin anymore, bring, bring her back and give him to her husband. And that was a thing. Well, this seems to be what Gilgamesh is, is doing. Uh, he's the king. He's got the power. And it's saying he won't leave any of the sons alone for their fathers. Maybe he's sending them to war. I don't know. It says day and night his behavior was overbearing. So the people didn't like him. And it said he did not leave the young girls alone, not the daughters of warriors, not the brides of young men. Gilgamesh had no shame. He was going around taking whatever he wanted. And the gods heard their complaints. That's where we are. It says they called upon the great Aruru. And this this is a name they use for the great mother goddess. It says, Aruru, you created mankind. Now create something for him to match the ardor of his energies. Let them be regular rivals. And let Uruk be allowed peace. When Aruru heard this, she created inside herself the word of Anu, washed her hands, pinched off a piece of clay. She created a primitive man, Enkidu, the warrior. His whole body was shaggy with hair. He knew neither people nor country. He was dressed as cattle are. With gazelles, he eats vegetation. With cattle, he quenches his thirst at the watering place. 
All right, so what in the Sam hell is happening? So, so the people are complaining about the King Gilgamesh. And who are they complaining to? They're complaining to the gods. They're praying. God, God, you know, do something about this Gilgamesh. He's, you know, he's, he's completely ridiculous. Um, and there's nothing they can do, right? So they appeal to the gods. And what do they ask? So the, the gods say, let's make somebody for Gilgamesh, somebody to match his energies. It says, let them be regular rivals. And let Uruk be in peace. So the idea is, if we can pair Gilgamesh up with somebody like him, that person can keep Gilgamesh entertained, can keep him busy, and he'll leave, he'll leave the rest of the people alone and they'll stop complaining to the gods. That's kind of the idea. So I don't know what you think of that. Um, if you have young kids, especially young boys, you might understand that. It's like, look, this little kid has so much energy, way too much for me, I'm exhausted. Maybe I'll just invite over one of his friends and let them just karate chop the shit out of each other all day long and climb, o- climb over all the furniture and run around like crazy. And at the end of the day, they'll eat dinner well and they'll go to sleep early. And that will be best for everyone. And this sort of seems like the strategy that the gods are employing with the king. Something like that. Um... There's also something I want to bring up here, which is um, a myth, a myth that uh, we see all over the place in, in ancient mythology. Um, it's called, it's usually called the Hostile Brothers. And Jordan talks about this in, in Maps of Meaning a lot and includes, uh, you know, versions of that, like the Cain and Abel story would be would be one of those, Hostile Brothers. The way that God, the God and the devil are, are um, demonstrated, like, uh, like in the book of Job, let's say, or in the Zoroastrian religion where um, Ahura Mazda and Ahriman are like the good God and the bad God and they're always at war with each other. Or even the way Jesus and Lucifer um, go back and forth, like the way Lucifer tempts Jesus and all that sort of thing. You can see that there's a theme in myth um, that, that has this hostile brother theme kind of going back as far as we know. And here in ancient Mesopotamia, this is, seems to be what we're seeing with Gilgamesh and Enkidu. And if you didn't pick up on it, Enkidu is a wild man. He's covered in hair. He lives in the forest. He eats with the animals. He's some kind of some kind of special thing. Um, all right. So then, when uh, when the goddess creates Enkidu, something interesting is said. It says she created inside herself the word of Anu. Washed her hands, pinched off a piece of clay. She created a primitive man, Enkidu the warrior. So what's happened here? So the goddess creates something inside herself. I think that's interesting. Um, what she's creating inside herself is the word of Anu. Now, Anu is the god of the sky. He's the god that wields the lightning bolt. He's, a, he's basically Zeus, the god of the sky that wields the lightning bolt, right? Um, you know, and, and Zeus is the, is the great god, the father of the gods. Um, so what's happened here is the word of God has been created inside of this goddess. And if I say the word of God like that, do you, do you pick up on the biblical, on the biblical comparison, the word of God, you know, we, we talk about that when we talk about the Bible, but the Bible talks about that in a whole different way. The Bible says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That's different. Um, you know, when, when the Bible talks about Jesus, I can't think it's Mark, I can't remember. Um, he's called the Word made flesh, the Word of God made flesh. So we're talking about something different. We're not talking about the Bible or Scripture. We're talking about something else. We're talking about the Logos 
um, the wor- the word that was spoken by God in the beginning that that hovered over the face of the waters and the deep, that thing, the thing that was involved with the creation of the universe, that's the word of God. This is what the, the goddess Aruru is creating inside herself, the word of Anu. And she uses that along with a pinch of clay to make Enkidu. Just like we saw earlier with human beings being created um, with the blood in the flesh of the god. This is the word of Anu that's being mixed in with the clay to come up with this Enkidu character. You see what I mean? So there's a, there's a um, connection between clay being used in the Bible. There's a connection here between the word of God being part of this process of creation. And what, what, what the result of this is, is Enkidu the warrior. His, his whole body was shaggy with hair. He knew neither people nor country. So he didn't, he, you know, he was a wild man. All right, so then what happens next in the story is, uh, and by the way, I, I'll ask you again, does any of this stuff about uh, the king and Enkidu, you know, the wild man being created, any of this stuff ringing a bell from the Bible? No? Okay, I'll carry on. Um, all right, so a hunter encounters Enkidu in the wild. This is the first time a subject of Gilgamesh has seen this creature. He's basically vexed by him because Enkidu keeps helping free all the animals that the hunter's trying to to kill. So he sets a trap and Enkidu lets the animals free from the trap, right? He, he lives with the animals. He's like Tarzan. You know, he's like Mowgli. Uh, his, his family and friends are the animals, not humans, right? So if they get caught, he's helping them out. And the hunter keeps going in the woods and seeing this wild man and realizing that every time he traps an animal, he can't feed his family because this crazy wild man keeps freeing all of the animals from the traps. So you can imagine Hunter is not, is not happy. But he's also not really willing to go and confront Enkidu because he's, he's fucking Tarzan. You know, you can walk up to this crazy, strong, wild-looking, you know, half-human creature. And, you know, I'm just picturing Bigfoot, basically. Can you, can you imagine an ordinary hunter walking up and saying, Hey, Bigfoot, knock it off. No. And that's not what this hunter does either. He goes to the king. He goes to Gilgamesh and begs him for help. And what does Gilgamesh say? He says, go, hunter, lead forth the harlot Shamhat. And when he approaches the cattle at the watering place, she must take off her clothes and reveal her attractions. He will see her and go close to her. Then his cattle will become alien to him. All right, so cattle, by the way, is just a word for kind of any four-legged creature in the forest uh, or, you know, the, in the wild. It's not really, you know, they don't really mean cows when they say cattle back then. So what's happened here? Um, go, hunter, lead forth the harlot Shamhat. So he says, I'm going to give you this prostitute. And there were ritual prostitutes back then. So you can, you can imagine like a, a prostitute who's high class, who lives in the temple, and who, who does, you know, who has sex with people uh, in ri- religious rituals. So there's those kind of prostitutes and, um, you know, the temple priestesses, and then there's just regular prostitutes. I don't know which one this one was, but he, she, she, you know, Shamhat, he's going to take this lady to the forest to try to find the wild man. And when he finds the wild man, he's basically going to remove the clothes of the, of the woman and have her go and try to tame him, if you know what I mean. So I want to, I want to bring up here that, uh, Jordan Peterson talks about the story of Sleeping Beauty which is an old story. I mean, the, the movie, the Disney movie, goes back a, a long ways, but the story is goes back to the Middle Ages, maybe even earlier. It's an old story. 
And when he talks about that story, he, he talks about how Sleeping Beauty is kissed by the prince and that he wakes her from her unconsciousness by doing so. And he's explaining that, that there's something about sexuality. When, when maturing sexuality happens in a, in a woman and a man, and they realize that with, with each other, so um, you know they have sex or whatever it is, that, uh, that it, it brings them from this place of relative unconsciousness, like the, like the way a child is, the way a child understands their, themselves in the world, to a more mature way, to a more self-conscious way, to, to a way that understands how people see you, um, you know, how you see yourself. It's, it's, the Sleeping Beauty story is, is a story about how sexuality brings self-consciousness to young people who are maturing. And this is what I see with Shamhat and Enkidu. It's just in reverse. It's not the prince coming to kiss the sleeping, the sleeping princess. It's the, the horror going to kiss the sleeping wild man, for lack of a better word. So let me keep reading. So finally, Enkidu reappears, and um, the hunter, you know, does what he's supposed to do. It goes like this. Here he is, Shamhat. Bare your bosom. Open your legs and let him take in your attractions. For six days and seven nights, Enkidu was aroused and poured himself into Shamhat. When he was sated with her charms, he set his face towards the open country of his cattle. The gazelles saw Enkidu and scattered. Enkidu had been diminished. He could not run as before, yet he had acquired judgment and had become wiser. So Enkidu has sex with a prostitute, um, just like he was supposed to, and it works just like it was supposed to. Something about being tamed by, by Shamhat um, has taken away some, some power that he had, the great strength and the speed he had to live in the, in the wild with the, with the animals, like, like them. You know, he was no longer like an animal, you know, like a conscious creature, like an animal that's going around following their instincts, but rather he's now a self-conscious creature, something like that. And all of the animals that used to be like his family, they don't even, they don't even know him anymore. They run from him. And that sucks, but it, but it's not just bad. You know, the good thing is that he acquired judgment. He'd become wiser as a consequence. All right, so I want to bring something up. I don't know if you noticed this, but th- this story rings of the Eden story as well. That Adam and Eve, um, that, they, that they get self-consciousness through the eating of the uh, tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil. They become self-conscious. How do we know that? Well, we know that because they, they knew that they were naked and they were hiding from God because they knew they were naked. That's how we know they were self-conscious because they realized that they didn't have any clothes on. You know, it makes, per- makes perfect sense. And then, you know, the nakedness and the man, the one man and the one woman, it's hard not to talk about that story, you know, in sexuality because that's, because that's part of it. So there does seem to be a connection between that and this Enkidu Shamhat story. But there's also another one that comes to mind. And I wonder if you picked up on this. Um, there's a story in the Bible, in, in the book of Judges, it's about Samson and Delilah. You guys probably know Samson and Delilah. If you know the story... You knew that Samson was this incredibly strong person. He had superhuman, godlike strength. Um, you probably also know that Delilah was a treacherous little character in the story, and that she's convinced to cut Samson's hair. Um, 
because that's where his power lies, right? That's where his strength comes from. If his hair is cut, he no longer has that strength. He's no longer dangerous. And so the book of Judges reads like this. Samson confessed that he would lose his strength if my head were shaved. And while he slept, the faithless Delilah brought in a Philistine who cut Samson's hair, draining his strength. All right, I want to read two other things uh, again that I already read, talking about Enkidu. Enkidu the warrior, his whole body was shaggy with hair. Right? And the last one is... um, It says, for six days and nights, Enkidu was aroused and poured himself into Shamhat. When he was sated with her charms, he set his face towards the open country. The gazelles and Enkidu uh, saw Enkidu and scattered. It says Enkidu had been diminished. So the Philistine who cut Samson's hair, draining his energy. And the hairy wild man encounters Shamhat and his, and his strength is diminished. So I don't know if you picked up on this on this hair and this diminishing of power theme, but you see it here with Enkidu, and you see it also with Samson and Delilah, another story that goes back a long ways in the Old Testament. So there you have it. A treacherous woman is involved in both play, in both stories, and the hair is seen in both stories. I know it's a strange detail, but you can imagine if this if this is an older story, and the Mesopotamians and the Jews both kind of carried it with them in different directions where you might see something like that pop up. The hair being part of this story. That's an interesting little detail that's carried on. Okay, next. The harlot spoke to him. You have become profound, Enkidu. You have become like a god. Why should you roam the open country with wild beasts? Come, let me take you to Aruk, the dwelling of Anu and Ishtar, where Gilgamesh is perfect in strength, more powerful than any of the people. Enkidu spoke to her, Come, Shamhat, let me challenge him. Well, does any of this stuff sound familiar to you from the Bible? You know, this uh, king being uh, uh, being brought into um, connection with this crazy wild man, being paired together. Um, you know, none of this stuff that I can, that I can tell is in the um, creation story or the Noah story or any of that. This all seems to be pretty, pretty unique. Interesting, but pretty unique. So uh, Shamhat's going to take Enkidu back to the city, Uruk, and that's where Gilgamesh is. And because Gilgamesh is supposed to be the most powerful man and the king, Enkidu wants to challenge him because Enkidu believes he's the most powerful thing. All right, I want to bring your attention to one other thing. Um, In the beginning, when the harlot's speaking to Enkidu, he says, you have become profound, Enkidu. So remember, when when Enkidu said that he... um, that he had acquired judgment, and he'd become wiser, you know, when uh, he slept with Shamhat. Shamhat's telling him, you have become profound. So there's something about that, something about that experience of sexuality that's made him profound. And he says, you have become like a god. Now, earlier we talked about this in connection with the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve story. And in that story, when they eat the knowledge of, of the tree of, uh, the fruit of the, of the knowledge of, of good and evil, the Bible says, you have become as one of us, knowing good and evil. This is what God is saying. You have become like a God, knowing good and evil. That's exactly what Shamhat says. You have become profound. You have become like a God. Interesting. All right, so there's a bunch of fragmentary parts of the text right here. 
um, where we're not, not exactly sure what's going on because it hasn't all survived, but it implies that Enkidu and, and Gilgamesh fought. So Enkidu comes to Uruk, gets together with Gilgamesh. They fight for dominance, basically. And they come to find out that they're each other's equals, and they're basically be- best friends. And that reminds me of um, Step Brothers. Did we just become best friends? Yep. That's what happened with Enkidu and Gilgamesh. <clears throat> and it says, They grappled at the door, wrestled in the street, in the public square. Door frames shook, walls quaked. So they had a hell of a row. Okay. So after the fight, now they make up and they make friends. Enkidu informs Gilgamesh that there's a terrible monster that protects the pine forest, but it also terrorizes the people that ever go there. So remember, Enkidu is from the forest. He knows all of the dark secrets of the forest, the places where people don't live. You know, he knows all of that stuff. So he brings to the king a real threat. He says there's a there's a monster, Humbaba, who lives in the forest. And every time somebody goes near the pine forest, Humbaba gets them. We have to we have to fix that. Um, so when Enkidu's talking about that, he says, he says, Humbaba, whose shout is the flood weapon, whose utterance is fire, and whose breath is death, who can hear for up to sixty leagues the sound of his forest. So you can get the picture. Humbaba is a terrible creature, and it's his forest, not the king's forest. So Gilgamesh and Enkidu then they go out uh, to look for the god Ninsun. You remember that's Gilgamesh's mother, for advice and how they can defeat this monster Humbaba. And Ninsun entreats the god Shamash, uh, which is another high god, on their behalf, and um, she also adopts Enkidu as her own son. So she now has Gilgamesh and Enkidu both as her sons. And I want to I want to mention something else here because. The story about Enkidu and Gilgamesh going out and fighting this beast that lives in the forest that's, uh, you know, harming harming the villagers, let's say. And that, and that hero that goes out, in this case Gilgamesh, being half divine because their mother was a goddess. That's something that we see in other epics. And the one that comes to my mind is actually not even that old. It's goes back to the to the medieval period it's beowulf if you guys know the story of beowulf you know that's a that's an anglo-saxon germanic you know epic it comes from germany it comes from the indo-european tradition not from this mesopotamian stuff but in that story beowulf's mother is a goddess so he is like this hero he's like this you know semi-divine hero like hercules and beowulf finds out about grindel and Grindel's this monster in the forest, and he has to go kill Grindel, and then finds out Grindel's mother is, is still in the forest, lurking, hidden, and he has to go back after her and, and find her. This story is very much like Enkidu and Gilgamesh going after Humbaba. So the story goes on when they finally reach Humbaba. Uh, Humbaba made his, made his voice heard. The fool Gilgamesh and the brutish man ought to ask themselves, why have you come to see me? Even if I were to kill you, would I satisfy my stomach? I shall bite through your windpipe, Gilgamesh, and leave your body for roaring lions, birds of prey, and scavengers. Damn, what a threat. What a nasty threat. I wish I had more of a villainous voice to to do Humbaba's uh, piece, but you get it. 
So he calls Gilgamesh a fool. He calls Enkidu brutish. He says, you know, I could kill you, but you wouldn't even fill me up. I'll tear your windpipes out and leave you for the, for the birds. That's what he says. Of course, them be fighting words. So the battle breaks out, of course, at that point. And the story says, he struck his head and matched him. They stirred up the ground with the heels of their feet. Sarara and Lebanon were split apart at their gyrations. While clouds grew black, death dropped down over them like a fog. Shamash summoned up the great tempest against Humbaba. Thirteen winds rose up at him, and Humbaba's face grew dark. He could not charge forwards. He could not run backwards. Thus, the weapons of Gilgamesh succeeded against Humbaba. And, of course, he sticks a sword in through his, uh, through his uh, body and then, you know, off with uh, Humbaba. So... So they've struggled with Humbaba. It was quite the battle. I mean, you can see when he says they stirred up the ground with the heels of their feet and Sarara and Lebanon were split apart at their gyrations. You know, Lebanon is a whole country. So he's saying that the ground shook and split. A whole country felt the earthquake that was the fight against Humbaba. That's basically what he's saying. Multiple countries. The clouds grew black and death dropped over them like a fog. You know, you can see it was uh, quite the quite the thing. So this battle is going on, but nobody's winning. And so the god Shamash actually steps in, and he has all these winds, the forces of winds, the tempests. You're talking, you're talking about hurricane force winds, tornadoes, that kind of thing. He sends them after Humbaba and basically paralyzes him so that he can't move. And as soon as that happens, Gilgamesh and Enkidu have their opportunity, and they take it. All right, so the story changes at this point uh, to to a different segment. I call it the Revenge of Ishtar and the Death of Enkidu. So, spoiler alert. All right, so Gilgamesh's victory over Humbaba brought him to the attention of the goddess Ishtar, who promptly fell in love with him. Um, And this happened to Odysseus as well in the Odyssey. um, You know, you you do great heroic deeds uh, against, you know, massive odds. Apparently that makes you that makes you shine. It makes you attractive to the goddess, to the goddess who wouldn't ordinarily care about a human being. But you've done something hero-like. You've done something godlike. You've brought you've brought the goddess's attention on yourself, and that's what Gilgamesh did. And Ishtar is, you know, one of the most important goddesses, the goddess of war and love. So, uh, so she comes after Gilgamesh, um, and asks, you know, for, for, to make Gilgamesh her husband, and he says no. He rejects her. And why? Because every time Ishtar had ever married anybody in the past, and you, if you read any of the myths, you'll see that it doesn't work out well for the mortals who end up married to Ishtar or, or making love with Ishtar. It doesn't, it doesn't go well for them. So he says no. Um, but that, as you can imagine, that didn't go well. Ishtar was not happy about that. So she goes to her father, the sky god, Anu. That's Zeus, remember? You know, she asks him for the bull of heaven. So she wants to use the bull of heaven to strike down Gilgamesh because she's so pissed that he, she's been rejected. So, the, it, you know, the bull of heaven is not exactly described, but I'm not sure what it is, but it's something that can be used uh, to kill Gilgamesh. Um, she says, Father, please give me the bull of heaven and let me strike Gilgamesh down. If you don't give me the bull of heaven, I shall rise up the dead and they will eat the living. I shall make the dead outnumber the living. Our holy zombie apocalypse, Batman. That's quite the threat from Ishtar. Um, 
If you don't give me the bowl of heaven, I shall raise up the dead and they will eat the living. I shall make the dead outnumber the living. Okay, so you can imagine um, An does not, he does not exactly like that idea either. Um, so he, he, he gives her the bowl of heaven. So Ishtar sent the bowl of heaven after Aruk and Gilgamesh and killed a lot of the citizens. It says that they were swallowed up by the earth. So she, she kills a lot of Gilgamesh's people. So Gilgamesh and Enkidu, of course, join forces to defeat the Bull of Heaven. And they managed to actually do that. Um, Ishtar demanded vengeance that either Enkidu or Gilgamesh should die for slaying Humbaba and the Bull of Heaven. Like these are both, you know, supernatural creatures. They're more um, they're they're more related to the gods than to human beings. It's like cousins. So the gods' cousins were killed, Humbaba and the Bull of Heaven, and somebody's gotta pay. So at this point, I want to mention all of the things that Gilgamesh has been through so far. You know, he uh, he had to fight Enkidu, and he had to succeed. Um, he had to fight Humbaba, and find Humbaba, fight Humbaba, and succeed. He had to fight the Bull of Heaven and succeed. All of these things are impossible tasks. And it's another connection to Hercules. So I brought that up earlier. You know, Gilgamesh, the demigod. Hercules is remembered for his 12 labors. So these are 12 different things like this, like the defeat of Humbaba, like the defeat of the Bull of Heaven, you know, um, these, these difficult, impossible supernatural tasks. And uh, Hercules has to do 12 of them uh, in order to sort of prove his, his godhood. And that's what's happening here. Gilgamesh is going through these 12 labors, these 12 trials, just like just like Hercules would do, you know, from the Greek perspective. And so there's a connection there. This is a much older story. So, so the story of somebody like Hercules is, is coming from this older story, this Gilgamesh story. Really, really interesting. Okay, um, where did I leave off? Uh, okay, so the bull of heaven is killed, and Ishtar is saying somebody's got to pay. All right, so turns out, um, after some back and forth, the gods allow Enkidu to be the one to die. Now, I'll pick it back up here. It says, Gilgamesh mourned bitterly for Enkidu, his friend, and roamed open country. So he's wandering the wilderness, basically. Um, he says, I shall take the road and go quickly to see Utnatipshin. So you can imagine, he's wallowing in regret for the loss of Enkidu, He's in terrible fear of death now uh, because Enkidu's dead. Remember, he and Enkidu were like equals and he considered himself to be powerful, so powerful he can go and destroy these, you know, supernatural creatures like Humbaba and the Bull of Heaven. That's how strong they are. That's how, that's how you know, um, impenetrable they are. They have, no, they have no fear of death. And then all of a sudden, Enkidu is dead. So... Gilgamesh is out wandering the wilderness, thinking about death. He's now worried. If Enkidu, my equal, my brother, if he could die, then I can die. And what does he do? He says, I shall take the road and go quickly to see Utnapishtim. Why is he doing that? Why is this fear of death and Enkidu having gone make him go off on another quest to see this guy, Utnapishtim? So remember, that's Noah. He's going to see Noah. Why? So let's get there. 
So Gilgamesh travels again. He travels far to the mountain of Mashu. The mountain of Mashu is important because that's the place where Shamash, the sun god, rises every day. So you can imagine that's east somewhere. He's going to the mountain Mashu. And this is a place where scorpion men guard the mountain. These are half men, half scorpion creatures. So now we're, now we're in some kind of J.R. talking story. But this is cool, man. This is something that they should make a movie about. Um, so you got these scorpion men that are guarding the mountain. That's who Gilgamesh encounters when he gets there. He knows he has to go through this mountain to get to Noah, to find wherever it is he went. Um, now, the thing is, the scorpion men, they recognize that Gilgamesh is special. They recognize that he's got some divine in him. So they're going to let him in the mountain, but they're giving him all these warnings. They say, look, there's no light in the mountain, and it's a long journey, and it's a dangerous journey through the mountain, and you can't see anything. And you know what they say, that the, the unknown is, is, is where the fear comes from. If you can't see anything, you don't know what's there. So it could be anything. So you can imagine how terrifying it is to be walking God knows how long through the pitch black, not knowing what's in front of you or behind you, not knowing what that noise was. That's the kind of thing that Gilgamesh is doing right now. But nonetheless, uh, he prevails. He gets through the mountain. He exits through the other side, and there's a beautiful wilderness and a vast sea when he gets there. And the first the first person he encounters is afraid. He, he runs away from him, basically. And he, you know, follows and catches up to this woman. He convinces her to tell him how he could cross the sea, because that's what that's where he needs to go to find Utnapishtim. And now she sends him to find a different guy. His name is um, uh, Urshanabi. He's the boatman. So she, go find Urshanabi. He'll take you across the the sea. He's the on, he's your only your only option. And so he goes and he finds him and convinces him to take him across the sea. And finally he he does. So there's a lot more to the story, obviously, but you can see how difficult it is. It's like him walking to Mordor. How how difficult it is, how long it takes. There's always obstacles. Just like Odysseus trying to get home, you know, from Troy. Obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. And that's what's happening to Gilgamesh. Uh, but he finally gets across the sea, and, and while he's going across the sea, the boatman tells him not to touch the water. Um, he says, he says, don't let the lethal water touch your hand. And it kind of reminds you of the... Um, uh, the, the river sticks, you know, that you have to cross to get to the land of the dead. And, you know, you can't touch that water either. It's, it, it'll kill you. It'll, it'll, you know, it'll kill you. All right. So Gilgamesh reaches the shore. He doesn't, he doesn't touch the waters. He finally gets there safe. He reaches Utnapishtim and he addresses him. He says, Enki do my friend whom I love so much, who experienced every hardship with me. The fate of mortals conquered him. For six days and seven nights I wept over him. I did not allow him to be buried until a worm fell out of his nose. I was frightened. I am afraid of death. So I thought I would go to see Utnatishtim, the far distant of whom people speak. My own misfortunes have reduced me to misery. I look at you, Utnapishtim, and your limbs are no different. You are just like me. So anyway, you can see Gilgamesh has got to Inki, to uh, to Noah. I'm having trouble pronouncing Utnapishtim, so I'm going I'm to I'm going to try to limit that. He finds the Noah character, um, and he and the first thing he says is uh, he says, 
I, I needed to come see you, the, the person of whom people speak. So then what you're supposed to understand here is that this story of Noah, that this is an old and already known story. Everybody knows about this guy. Everyone knows he survived the flood. Everyone knows he's out there somewhere. And he went to go find him. Still not clear why, but we'll get there. And he says, my own misfortunes have reduced me to misery. And then he says, I look at you and your limbs are no different, that you're just like me. It's like he's surprised. He's like, I look at you and you're supposed to be this special man who survived the the destruction of the world, but you look just like me. And then Noah says, let me reveal to you a closely guarded matter, Gilgamesh. Let me tell you the secret of the gods. Oh shit, here we go. Secret of the gods. So the story now that is being told by Noah is the story of the flood. So here we are. The great city Shurupak was already old when the gods within it decided that the great gods should make a flood. And the god E commanded Utnapishtim, he says, Man of Shurupak, dismantle your house, build a boat, leave possessions, search out living things. Reject chattels and save lives. Put aboard the seed of all living things into the boat. Then he says, The boat you are to build shall have her dimensions in proportion. Her width and length shall be in harmony. Roof her like the Apsu. I laid down her form. One acre was her circumference. Ten pole each the height of her walls. I put on board the boat of all, all my kith and kin. Put on board cattle from the open country, wild beasts, all kinds of craftsmen. In the evening, a rain showered down. All right, so that should sound familiar. It should sound something like this from the Bible. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shall pitch it within and pitch without. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and, it, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above, and the door of the ark shalt shall thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories thou shalt make it. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein the breath of life from under heaven and everything that is in the earth shall die. So what I want to point out here is this strange inclusion in the story of how the ark should be built. So when, so when Noah is telling Gilgamesh the story, he says, I was told to build its dimensions in proportion and to, and to build a roof and to build it in, um, in different levels. And, you know, the, the, the circumference should be one acre and 10 poles should be the height and all this, right? And then the, the, the biblical story comes off and says, the length of the ark shall be 300 cubits and the breadth shall be 50 cubits. So you have the exact dimensions of the boat being described in both stories. I think that's really interesting and really strange. And then, he, and then in, the myth, in the Mesopotamian story, he says, I put on board all my kith and kin. I put on board cattle from the open country, wild beasts, and so forth. And the biblical story, uh, the same thing. He says, um, uh, That you know that uh, well, I, I didn't copy the quotes here, but you you know the story, two of every kind, and all that sort of thing. So we see that in both stories. And then this story continues. It says, "I saw the shape of the storm. The storm was terrifying to see. Everything light turned to darkness. On the first day, the tempest rose up, blew swiftly, and brought the flood weapon. 
like a battle force over the people. Ishtar screamed like a woman giving birth. I gave myself, excuse me, Ishtar says, I gave birth to them. They are my own people, yet they fill the sea like fish spawn. The gods of the Anunnaki were weeping with her. So this is interesting. Um, This is talking about the flood and the people dying, and the gods are weeping as the people are, are, are dying, and at least Ishtar is weeping. That's not something you get from the biblical story at all. You don't, you don't get any remorse from the biblical story. Of course, in the biblical story, you've only got one God, so the God that's doing the killing can't exactly be the same God doing the remorse. But you do see the remorse in the Mesopotamian story, which is interesting. And it continues, For six days and seven nights the wind blew, flood and tempest overwhelmed the land. Um, that should sound very much like the biblical story. It goes like this, and the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So we're talking about different time periods, obviously. Um, I've, heard, I've heard people say that, that um, 40 and 7 and, and, and certain other numbers have lots of other connotations to them, and some of them just mean, you know, a lot. You know, it just means a lot. It's like 40 days could just mean a lot, not exactly 40 days. So I'm not going to get bogged down on the number of days, but in both stories, they... They give the number of days, the flood lasts. And then the story goes, When the seventh day arrived, the sea became calm. The wind grew quiet. The flood held back. Silence reigned, for all mankind had returned to clay. I looked for banks, for limits to the sea. Areas of land were emerging everywhere. The boat had come to rest on Mount Nimsh, uh, Nimush. So that may sound like the biblical, which goes like this. And after the end of 150 days, the waters were abated. And the ark rested in the seventh month on the seventh day, on the 17th day of the month upon the mountain of Ararat. So again, Mount Namush, Mount Ararat, there are different mountains seemingly, but you get the, you get the idea. And we continue. When the seventh day arrived, I put out and released a dove. The dove went, it came back, for no perching place was visible to it. And it turned round. I put out and released a raven. The raven went and saw the waters receding and did not turn around. Then I put everything out to the four winds and I made a sacrifice. The gods smelt this the fragrance. The gods, like flies, gathered over the sacrifice. Okay, so that may sound like the biblical, which goes like this. And he sent forth a raven, which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth. He also sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. And the dove came in to him in the evening, and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters were abated from the earth. Both stories, two birds released. Both stories, a raven and a dove. That's an interesting coincidence. Maybe a little too interesting for these stories to not be that related. Very, very closely related. Either one borrowed from the other, or both borrowed from an older story, which, which I think may be the case. All right, so then, so then at this point in the story, um, Noah makes a sacrifice, and the smell goes up to the gods, so the gods know the flood didn't exactly work. Somebody's still out there. When Enlil discovers this, he says, What sort of life survived? No man should have lived through the destruction. Enlil came up into the boat and seized my hand and led me up. He led, me, he led up my woman and made her kneel down at my side. He touched our foreheads, stood between us, 
blessed us and said, Until now, Utnapishtim was mortal, but henceforth Utnapishtim and his woman shall be as we gods are. So this is interesting. kind of looks like there's not supposed to be any human beings left. But there were. So rather than killing them, they made them gods. That's kind of what it seems like to me. And that's very different from the biblical story, but it's interesting. It's interesting because how connected this story is, not just with the Noah story, but with the Adam and Eve story. And this is what I mean. When they said, until now, Noah was mortal, but henceforth uh, he and his woman shall be as we gods are, reminds me of this biblical phrase, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So that's what, that's what happened um, in, in the Eden story, when the, the snake is trying to convince Eve to eat the fruit she's not supposed to eat. She knows when she eats it, she will be as God is. It says, your eyes shall be opened. You will be as the gods are, knowing good and evil. And this is exactly what's happened here. That, that Enlil comes down and makes Noah and his wife gods. All right, the story continues. Utnatipshin um, shall dwell far off at the mouth of the rivers. They took me and made me dwell far off. So this explains why Utnatipshin was so hard to find, why Gilgamesh had to go a long way to find him, and why, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, but it does explain why there, there was an adventure even to find Noah, because God put, put him somewhere far off the mouth of the rivers. It says, they took me and made me to dwell far off. Who did? The gods did. Put you in this far off place where you're away from all the other human beings. We don't exactly know why yet, but I want to read some biblical passages um, off of this. Utnatiptian shall dwell far off at the mouth of the rivers. They took me and made me to dwell far off. The Bible says of uh, Adam and Eve, after they get kicked out of the garden, therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden. So he drove out the man. This is exactly what we see happening to to Noah in the Mesopotamian story. Just like Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, Noah and his wife were sent far away. Same exact thing. And then the story continues, So now, who can gather the gods on your behalf, Gilgamesh, that you too may find eternal life, which you seek? Okay, so now it all comes together. So now he says, this is Noah again saying that he got eternal life granted to him from the gods. That's why he's, he's still alive for Gilgamesh to find. And that's why he's been placed far away, away from the other human beings by the gods. Because he's a god. He's immortal. And that's what Gilgamesh wants, right? He's now afraid because Enkidu has died and he knows he is mortal. Same thing that happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. They became self-conscious. They realized that they were mortal. This happens to Gilgamesh. And what does he do? He's afraid. He wants to find a way to not have to die. So he goes and he seeks after Noah, the man who became a god, the man who doesn't have to die. How did you get your immortality, Noah? Because I need that. I'm so afraid to die. This is what's happened. It's like a, it's like a weird hybrid of the Noah story and the Adam and Eve story mixed together. That's how it seems to me. And it's not over yet. There's another piece of the story. I'm going to call it the quest for immortality. 
all right, so before giving the secret, um, the secret of the gods that, he's gonna, that Noah's going to tell Gilgamesh, he actually makes Gilgamesh sleep for six days. Um, on the seventh day, he wakes Gilgamesh up, and he sends him back to the boatman, asking him to wash and dress and, you know, come back once he's clean. And this is like a religious ritual. It's the same sort of thing that, uh, um, that the gods did when they made human beings, that they had a ritual, a ritual washing, you know. Um, so this is what he's asking Gilgamesh to do. He he's, makes him sleep for seven days. He sends him to wash, and he comes back. He says um, that he'll, that he'll uh, take him back to his country. At this point, Noah says, let me reveal the secret of the gods. We're finally getting there. He says, there is a plant whose root is like camel thorn, whose thorn, like a rose's, will spike your hand. If you yourself can win that plant, you will find immortality. So this is interesting. It's interesting for a couple reasons. It's not clear that this plant was used to make Noah immortal, but, but Noah knows about it, and that if, he can, if Gilgamesh can get it, that he, that he can use it to become immortal. So that's interesting. It's also interesting that it's a plant because we have examples of this from ancient mythology everywhere. Um, you know, from this same part of the world, really, um, from the um, the Indo-European or the uh, Indo-Aryan part of part of the uh, Middle East, you got this story about Soma, and we see it in the Indian religion, and we see it in the um, Zoroastrian religion that there is a food of the gods, something called soma, that you can eat to become immortal, and that that's how the, that's how the gods stay immortal, because they can consume soma. You get the same story in ancient Greece. Um, they call them the, um, the apples of Hesperides, or Hesperides. I don't know how you pronounce Greek words. They're always hard for me. Um, also, the word ambrosia. You might hear uh, in myths the food of the gods, but in the Bible, you hear a, a similar phrase. It's the fruit of the tree of life. Again, that goes back to the Adam and Eve story. So this is what's happening. Um, Noah's telling Gilgamesh that there's a plant that's hard to find. So this is another trial and tribulation. He has to go seek this plant and whatever dangers he has to go through to to get it. And Noah says, if you can win the plant, it's not going to be easy to do, then you will find immortality. I have to also say that consumption of uh, some sort of plant and a... um, feeling of conquering death or becoming God, that that is a common mystic experience that is achieved through psychedelic drugs, and that psychedelic drug use is something that was clearly associated with this type of a tradition, whether that was psychedelic mushrooms uh, of certain varieties, whether it was ergot, you know, whether there was all sorts of things it could have been, but these people were definitely partaking in that sort of a thing, definitely having mystic experiences. And if you have one, you will feel exactly like this, like you have conquered death. It's hard to explain, but it's definitely part of the experience. So I think that's really interesting. So what does Gilgamesh do? When Gilgamesh hears this, he ties heavy stones to his feet, and he, dra- he, drags, he uses them to drag himself down to the bottom of the sea. And he calls that Apsu, because Apsu is the the god of, of fresh water that, that uh, is supposed to exist underneath the earth. So it's the underworld. So Gilgamesh is tying stones to his feet, jumping in the waters and going down to the underworld. The waters, mythologically and in dream interpretations, are very often used to, to describe the unconscious. 
So you can imagine somebody diving into the unconscious and going down and down into the, to the deep, dark depths of that unknown until he hits the bottom. And when he gets to the bottom, he saw the plant and he manages to get it. And then he cuts off those heavy stones and flies back up to the surface and to the, into the shore. So this is what's happened. I'm summarizing for brevity, but he goes down to the bottom of the ocean, to the underworld. He finds this treasured plant. He brings it up. Um, when he gets back up to the boatman, um, the boatman says, this plant is a plant to, to cure a crisis. With it, a man may win the breath of life. So I have to point out, he uses the word breath of life in talking about immortality. That's exactly the thing the Bible says is breathed into Adam and Eve when, when he creates human beings, the breath of life. Exactly those words. All right, so the boatman says, um, or the, uh, excuse me, Gilgamesh says, I shall take it back to Aruk. At 30 leagues, they stopped for the night. Gilgamesh saw a pool whose water was cool, and he went down into the water and washed a snake smelt the fragrance of the plant. It came up silently and carried off the plant. As it took it away, it shed its scaly skin. Thereupon, Gilgamesh sat down and wept. So this is more or less where the story ends. Gilgamesh won what he needed to gain his immortality. But before he had a chance to use it, it was stolen away from him by the serpent. The same way Adam and Eve were in paradise and had it stolen away from them by the serpent. You see that, right? The snake robs mankind of the secret of the gods in both stories. Whether we're talking about this plant of immortality or whether we're talking about the fruit of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. The fruit of the tree of life sounds a lot like immortality to me. Let me read this to you from the Bible. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the serpent said unto woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. She took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and also gave unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Interesting. So you can see the snake's involvement in this fall, fall, fall from grace in both stories. It robs Gilgamesh of his immortality, and it robs Adam and Eve of, well, potentially the fruit of the tree of life. Now, do you think that there's a quest for immortality like this Gilgamesh story with Noah? Do you think there's one of them in the Bible? No? Not so fast. Not so fast. I'm going to have to disagree. It goes back to this fruit of the tree of life business. Now, this is something that most Christians don't really um, don't really think about. Um, but there's two trees in the garden, very very clearly, two trees in the garden that they're not supposed to eat from. The one that we the one that we hear about is the tree of knowledge. We very very uh, infrequently hear about the tree of life. So. So let me, let me recap this for you. The Bible says, And the eyes of them both were opened, so after they've eaten the apple. And they knew that they were naked, 
And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. Here's where it gets good. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Jesus, did you know that? So when Adam and Eve ate tree, uh, the, not the fruit of the tree of knowledge, then they became like gods. Then they knew good and evil. Then they were self-conscious creatures in God's image. At that point, they're, they're told they have to leave. They're removed from the garden. Why? Lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. That's why they were kicked out of the, out of the garden. So he drove out man and placed at the east of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword. Why? To keep the way of the tree of life. To keep the way of the tree of life. To keep it away from them. So Adam and Eve do not get the fruit of the tree of life so that they can eat and live forever. And Gilgamesh does not get to eat the plant either. The snake robs him of it. So you can see these stories do have connections. There's not nearly as much about the Atrahasis or Gilgamesh story that matches up word for word with the biblical story, apart from the Noah stuff, because that, that, that you can see, I mean, with the, the flood, with the building of the boat, with the number of days, um, you know, the flood lasts, with the instructions on how to build the boat, you know, putting all the animals on, the landing, landing on the mountain peak, all of those things are, even letting out the birds, and even the type of birds are exactly the same. So to that, to that point, you can see the stories very clearly share a common origin. But the rest of it really does seem to be like a, a hodgepodge of the Noah story from the Bible and the Adam and Eve story from the Bible mixed together, almost like, almost like the Gilgamesh story and those two stories from the Bible come from something earlier. And maybe they were combined in different ways over, over time. That happens. The Bible, the Bible was written over a very long period of time. So that could happen. But I just think that's really interesting. I think it puts some perspective here on how much may have been borrowed from the Mesopotamian stories and how much may, may be unique. But the, the idea that the Adam and Eve story and the Noah story really are not so different, I think is interesting. And you can see that only when you compare it to the Mesopotamian stories. And I have a little bit more here I want to talk about. But we're almost there. So earlier in the story, I talked about the Mesopotamian creation story, about how the heavens and earth were created, like Genesis 1 from the Bible. Um, it very quickly flows into, obviously, the story about the creation of man and the flood, which we've already read. But the rest of this stuff really um, is different from the Gilgamesh story. This one is called Anuma Elish, and it's really, again, Genesis 1 for the Mesopotamians. And it starts off like this. It says... You know, when the, where, the, where the Bible says in the beginning, you know, it, it goes like this. When skies were not yet named, nor earth below, Apsu, the first one, their begetter and maker, Tiamat, who bore them all, had mixed their waters together. When yet no gods were manifest, nor names pronounced, nor destinies decreed, then gods were born within them. 
So what you're seeing here is Apsu and Tiamat, which is the, the, the first two primordial gods, the salt water and the fresh water, the order principle and the chaos principle. And they were together. And it says that. It says, had mixed their waters. So that means they were together. And it says, no, uh, when no gods were yet manifest. Um, and it says, then gods were born within them. So what's happened here is Apsu and Tiamat are together. And they're being together. And by that, I mean, you might think of that like, like a sexual union. When those gods are, they, when they come together, the god and the goddess, then they give birth to these other gods. And it says those gods were born within them. So remember, Apsu and Tiamat are together. The gods are being born within them. So they're inside of this Apsu Tiamat thing. You can kind of imagine an egg. And this egg is full of all these gods. Um, and then the story goes on. There's like multiple generations of gods that are born that way and that are inside of Tiamat and Apsu. And then it goes on like this. It says, The gods of that generation would meet together and disturb Tiamat, and their clamor reverberated. They stirred up Tiamat's belly. They were annoying her by playing inside. Apsu could not quell their noise. Apsu made his voice heard and spoke to Tiamat. Their ways have become very grievous to me. By day I cannot rest. By night I cannot sleep. I shall abolish their ways and disperse them. Let peace prevail so that we can sleep. You see where I'm going with this? The Enuma Elish who's talking about the creation of the cosmos is talking about this primordial egg made of Apsu and Tiamat, that's filled with all the gods that are being born by their union. So you've got this egg full of all these spirits, for lack of a better word. And all of those gods are like psychological forces. They're the kind of things that people are going to say, oh, you know, um, Ishtar is the god of love, and Adad is the god of, you know, whatever. So you can see how these, what Jordan Peterson calls transpersonal forces, these sort of psychological forces are painted up in the um, in the costume of gods. They're given names, and then we think about them like they're apart from us and apart from the world. But really, you know, love and rage and all these things that we bottle up and call gods, um, those things are like psychological forces. And that's what Jordan Peterson would point out. So you can, you can also think of it that way, that these gods, these two primordial gods, order and chaos, they're just giving birth to all of these psychological forces of consciousness that are existing inside themselves. And the way it's described is that, is that it becomes a clamor that reverberates through Tiamat's belly. Remember, they're inside of Tiamat. They're inside of chaos. And they're becoming noisy, and they're starting to annoy Tiamat and Apsu. Do you see where I'm going with this? Let me, let, me, let me read it to you again. Where I'm going with this is a passage that we already read when we talked about the gods deciding to kill human beings, and it goes like this. And the country became too wide, the people too numerous. The country was, a, was as noisy as a bellowing bull. The gods grew restless at their racket. Enlil had to listen to their noise. He addressed the great, the great gods. The noise of mankind has become too much. I am losing sleep over their racket. You must create a flood. It is indeed your power that, that shall be used against your people. So you can see that the same, the same series of events that happened when human beings were created and they were making too much noise and they had to be destroyed. 
That's the same thing that happened with Apsu and Tiamat when they were creating the gods. The gods got too noisy inside Tiamat, and they, they had to get rid of them. They decided they couldn't sleep, they couldn't rest. The same exact language is being used. So I want to point this out. There's a connection here in the, the Mesopotamian mythology between the forces of nature and the gods that were created that, that are responsible for the cosmos and everything supernatural. There's a connection between them and the creation of human beings. It's almost like the same story. Consciousness is given to gods, just like it's given to man. They become noisy, whatever that means exactly, and the gods can't rest, and they have to be done away with. And we're seeing that same story in this older older version, the Enuma Elish, about the creation of the universe. So I think that's pretty, pretty interesting. Now you may wonder... Is there any evidence in the Bible that mankind was created to do to do work? Because that's what happens in the Mesopotamian story. The gods are doing all the work, so they create human beings to do the work for them. Then they get too noisy and have to be destroyed. So you might want to, you might wonder: Does the Bible pick up on that that human beings were here to do God's work? So here's a couple passages from Genesis I want to read you. Um, the question is whether the Bible has any evidence that human beings were created to do work. All right, so it says in in chapter 2, These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth, when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And there was not a man to till the ground. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And then after their expulsion from Eden, therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So you see, even in Genesis, there are several references that before mankind was created, it says that there was no man to till the ground. And that when man was created, he was put in the Garden of Eden. Why? It says, God took the man and put him into the garden to dress it and keep it. And then after, again, after they were expelled from Eden, what does God tell them to do? He sends them out of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So in all of these examples, right there in, the, in, in Genesis, it's, the, it's, it's not coming right out and saying that, that human beings are supposed to be working to, you know, to take that load off of the gods. But it's definitely there, right there in the same chapters in Genesis. The assumption and the, pre, the, the presumption that human beings were made to do work. And then even after the fall, they would continue to do work. And I think that's tied uh, to the idea of God as the creator. You know, God creates the cosmos, and human beings create whatever it is we create. Ideas, concepts, technology, you know, engineering, whatever it is that we create, that we're somehow doing what God did. We're carrying on the creative act in his image, something like that. So the gods created the cosmos, and we were created to kind of pick up where they left off and keep forming it and making it something new, and that's what we do. Look at the history of, of, of the earth since, since the dawn of mankind. That's exactly what we do. Okay, so this uh, story about the creation, the Onuma Elisha, continues like this. It says, E, the god E, put Apsu to sleep. Drenched with sleep, he held Apsu down and slew him. And inside Apsu, Marduk was created. Inside pure Apsu, Marduk was born. 
Proud was his form, piercing his stare. He was powerful from, from the start. He made him so perfect that his godhead was doubled. Elevated far above them, he was superior in every way. His, four were his eyes, four were his ears. When his lips moved, fire blazed forth. And likewise the eyes, they perceived everything. Highest among the gods. All right, so this is interesting, and I tell you this for a reason, um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, Marduk is, is created by, by killing this god Apsu. Um, we saw that. We, we saw a god being killed to create human beings. We already saw that sort of thing happen um, in the other myth. So, so Apsu's killed to create Marduk, and Marduk is consciousness. He's the god of consciousness. If you don't, if you don't see that, when it, when it describes him as being perfect and as being double as powerful as any of the other gods and superior, the way it describes him is saying, Four were his eyes, four were his ears. When his, when his lips moved, fire blazed forth that he perceived everything. That's consciousness. Consciousness is the thing that perceives everything. Eyes and ears are the things that perceive. So Marduk is the god of consciousness. And he's been created from Apsu. And that's, that's important in the story. But there's also something else that I think is important. And it's right at the beginning. It says, E put Apsu to sleep. Drenched with sleep, he held Apsu down and slew him. And inside Apsu, Marduk was created. And I'm going to read something else from the Bible that goes like this. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh inside. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. Right? Interesting. So where, where Apsu is put to sleep, and then from him is brought forth Marduk. In the Bible, Adam is put to sleep, and from him is brought Eve. And Eve, again, is the thing that brings self-consciousness to man, because it's the woman. The woman to pair off with the man, to make each other self-conscious. That's what the story of the Garden of Eden is all about. And here you see another similar pattern, where, where they're put to sleep, and then the creation happens happens inside them. And so that's what, that's what's happening here with Adam and Eve as well. So it's not a direct parallel, but it's definitely a parallel, parallel worth pointing out. So I don't know what you think about that, but that's the Epic of Gilgamesh. That's how it compares to the Bible and where, where it's so interesting to me has to do with the story of the creation of human beings and the story of the creation of the cosmos. In both stories, there being an emphasis on consciousness. Consciousness being there as the force that animates human beings when they're first created, or consciousness that's there um, to facilitate creation, you know, between uh, Apsu and Tiamat. Um, it's, it's, It's like the Mesopotamians had this mythological way of talking about these deep psychological truths, and it was very, very clear that they're informed by some kind of psychedelic experience. You can see that in the reference to the, uh, the tree of the, uh, the fruit of the tree of life. You can reference that to the plant that uh, Gilgamesh goes after that, that Noah tells him about. Um, you know, you can see that quest for immortality um, and its connections to psychedelic and mystic intuition. 
mystic experience. When you become one with the universe, which is what happens when you have a mystic experience, you realize that consciousness is one and that it's eternal. And the moment you are convinced of that, death becomes something that's impossible to to rationalize. It's how could there be such a thing as death? If consciousness is eternal, and just like energy changes from one form to another, that if that's what I am, then death is not something that I should be worried about. It's not something that it's not something that exists exactly. And this is the quest that Noah was on, and the quest that Gilgamesh was on, and the quest perhaps that we're all on. I think that's a religious quest. Then it's interesting. It goes all the way back, as far back as history goes, 6,000 BC and probably beyond. And we see it in the Bible. And I think that's interesting. So I don't know what you think. I'd be curious to know. Um, I think I'll do one more of these uh, in the near future. Um, Just to pique your interest, it's going to be about the Gospel of Thomas and what the Gnostics believed, the early Christian groups that people don't really know a lot of, how that compares to kind of ordinary Christian beliefs, because there's lots of interesting stuff to talk about there. So you can look forward to that until we meet again. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work, thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.